You're listening to episode 153 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Before we jump into our conversation today, I wanted to give you a quick personal announcement. Many of you know I've been working on the Five Masculine Instincts book for a couple of years now, and I recently was able to sign a contract with Moody for that book to be published in the spring of 2022. It's an important next step, and we're underway with the edits and revisions, and so I'm excited for you to be able to take a look at it in just a short number of months. It's also my honor to have Brad Lominick on the podcast today. If you've been in the church ministry pastor space, you have heard of Catalyst and Brad probably many times before. Uh, Brad's been doing some interesting work recently around the idea of curation, and I think it's helpful for writers as we get into in today's conversation. So I hope it helps you and you enjoy it as much as I did. As always, thanks for listening. Well, I'm joined on the podcast today by Brad Lominick. He's passionate about raising up great leaders around the globe. He is a business entrepreneur, a speaker, a sought-after leadership advisor, an author, and longtime president of Catalyst, which was largely credited with growing the organization into one of the largest and most recognized leadership brands and gatherings of young leaders in the U.S., Prior to running Catalyst, Brad spent several years working for legendary leadership author John Maxwell, as well as executive producing large simulcasts and stadium events. He continues to inspire leaders by speaking at conferences and events around the world. And I got distracted reading his bio because he adds this line at the end. For several years, he rode horses and was a ranch foreman in the mountains of Colorado. He played American football in Australia and New Zealand and was once in a rap group and hopes to one day play golf on the senior PGA Tour and have his own hunting team. TV show. Horses and hunting are two paths that could totally derail this conversation for me. Uh, but that's a little bit about Brad. It's a privilege and honor to have you on the podcast. That's listen, that's what everybody everybody's interest gets perked when uh, you know they read about rapping and football and horses and hunting. All yeah, well, the other you've stuff got is- a, there's a broad spectrum there to sort of interest anyone, right? From cowboy to exactly. rap group. That's uh that's a pretty broad spectrum. Cowboy rapper. How about that? <laughs> Well, Brad, it's a uh, man, a, quite a privilege, an honor to have you on the podcast. Um, you uh, obviously, I sort of came into pastoral ministry at a time where I'm not sure any pastor I knew didn't know about Catalyst, hadn't participated in some form of either a Catalyst resource or an event. Um, uh, you've done so much work in the leadership space, not just within the church, but also uh, within the business world and nonprofit sector. What is it that's continued to keep your interest or drawn you back in specifically to church leadership? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think that the biggest thing is just trying to impact leaders, you know, like at the end of the day, like that's the, that's the goal is, uh, it doesn't matter what industry or segment or occupation. Uh, it really is about impacting the, the influencers. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat like neutral, on which which industry, which category, whether it's the church or the marketplace or the nonprofit space, um, but I, you know, I do think that obviously, as a believer, um, the church is the hope of the world. You know, so if if we're gonna if we're gonna invest uh, in in one of those categories, uh, I want to I want to invest in something that's got some eternal significance for sure. 
Well, um, I mentioned I was always aware of Catalyst coming into ministry, but I don't know the backstory. How did, when did you first get involved? How did Catalyst come about those early days? What did that movement look like? Yeah, it was, you know, there was a bunch of people involved in the early days. So I wouldn't say that I was like the, the, uh, the founder necessarily. Um, John Maxwell was at the end of the day, really, John was the one who gave us all like the opportunity and um, there was another another uh, leader named Gabe Lyons, who now runs Q Conference and um, has been doing that for a bunch of years. And so Gabe really carried the weight of the vision, I would say, as a young leader in the early, early days. I was I was really brought in more to help with thinking about the business plan and doing marketing research. And I mean, I would say more the the behind the scenes and. There was also, you know, a number of voices from North Point who were part of that conversation initially. And Andy Stanley was never, he, Andy was never part of the, of the, you know, the core team, but Andy was very involved in, in obviously the, the teaching side at Catalyst. I mean, many people thought it was connected to North Point or it was, you know, part of North Point. Uh, it, it never was. There's a great partnership there. So lots of voices involved. And I think that was one of the beauties of it, to be honest with you, Chase. Like so many of these movements, and, and whether good or bad, they they have sort of one personality and and one person that really carries it. And I would say with Catalyst, like a lot of people were really, and I think in a good way, they were they weren't sure who was running it. And I, I think for a generation, you know that that was really my generation and probably yours too, like. We liked that. We 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 didn't. We wanted to be part of something that was sort of bigger than one person or bigger than um, you know a group. Or uh, I, th- I think that was so- sort of the beauty of it was it felt like it had this. Uh, we're all sitting at the table, getting to decide, and that's an interesting thing to think about. You know, when you're launching a movement or building something, is how do you how do you create such a sense of ownership? That, that goes beyond sort of the, the key team that, that really owns it and allows other people to feel possession of it. So we were pretty intentional about that. And, um, you know, I think that was part of the, I think that was part of the power of the brand, especially in the early days. Well, what was it that brought that group together? Because there's got to be something bigger than yourself that these guys are buying into. And also, I mean, you know, the tendency, okay, well, how does this fit into what I'm doing or my personal brand? Right? But there doesn't seem to be the sense of that. There seemed to be some some potential there that was big enough that let people contribute to it without, uh, as you're saying, needing to control it or needing to leverage it. What was that thing that sort of inspired all of you to work together like that? Well, it, internally within the John Maxwell organization, it was a bunch of us who were young who looked around and said, Hey, we love you, John. And we're, we're, we're on the team here and we're, we're going to help you like build this organization. But what, what would happen if we, if we did something for our friends and for our generation? So for those of us who were younger, it definitely felt like a new, a new gathering that, that had the potential to really like look and feel different than anything before it. And it also was, you know, when, when, when you're creating a product that you're the customer of, ultimately, I think that's when you really hit something that, that, that feels like it's got a lot of power to it. So that, that was one piece was, you know, we were all connected working on conferences and events and part of the, you know, the John Maxwell empire 
the ecosphere, the, you know, the orbit. But at the same time, it was like, hey, let's do something for us, for our friends, for our generation, that we that we kind of have permission to to take some risk and and be a little bit rebellious and, you know, build something again that we would go and tell our friends about that they would go, oh, I'm in on that. Um, the other thing was was that, um, again, when when I think of the early days and even the building of Catalyst, like there were lots of denominations, leaders, networks, associations, just think of, you know, we, we probably had a hundred different groups, Chase, that felt like they had a seat at the table. Now, again, did they? I mean, you could argue they really didn't, but in terms of them showing up and feeling like, hey, this is our movement, you know, we we get to be part of this. And that was the power of it is it wasn't like about one angle or one denomination or one uh, person or one one theological persuasion. We we gave room for a lot of different people, whether you were, you know, whether you were young or old. I mean, now the early days, you really had to be young. Uh, but really, when you when I thought about like the different streams that would show up and you would have even speakers, not just attendees, but speakers who were like, man, I would never even think that I might speak at the same event with that person. But if we're speaking at Catalyst together, oh, it's OK. And <laughs> Then you would they would get there and they would meet each other and they're like, wait, I actually kind of like you. Like, why have we been at each other's throats for all these years, you know, or whatever the issue was. So just that sense of unity, that sense of collaboration, the sense of partnership, the sense of abundance mentality, the sense of everybody has a seat at the table. Everybody belongs. You know, we're we're not trying we're, we're trying to bring all these streams together. Um, we, we really cast the net wide on purpose and. Again, I think for a generation that there was a sense of like, oh, we're in on that. Like we love the fact that I'm sitting next to somebody I might disagree with. But that was the that was the beauty of Catalyst. It was a safe place for leaders from all different backgrounds, perspectives to come together. And I think there was also an assumption of maturity in that, you know, like I'm I'm okay if I might hear something or even meet somebody who might see the world differently than I do, it's okay. Uh, and, you know, I would argue, you know, the last 20 years we've seen really a decline in so much of that sort of thinking. Everybody's kind of moved to the fringes. And I still think it's important. I mean, I still think there's just power in the messy middle where it it, it is a little harder, but it also takes a, a spirit of humility to be able to show up in that space and get along. Yeah, well, one of my follow-up questions was going to be if you think it's still possible. <laughs> is there still an environment for that? Because it does feel like it feels like there's so much energy right now. I mean, listen, a lot of the people listening are pastors, are writers. You know, there's so much emphasis on personal brand, on your own platform. And then there's so much. It seems like the content that gets so much attention is the, the divisive sort of calling each other out. You know, uh, there's that yep. great old Testament story where uh, they uh, they're listening it's during a civil war in Israel and they're making them say shibboleth to see how they pronounce the syllables. So they'll know if they're in the camp or not. And it feels like so much of what's online is that sort mm. of thing right now. Right. Like, did you use the right word so that I know you're in my camp and the ability to really listen to somebody with a different perspective, man, it's just not showing up on my feeds. It's, it's not showing up in the algorithms. It's not, are we living in a world where that kind of collaboration, that kind of willingness to hear and listen is still possible? Uh, is now a better time for it or are we losing that? 
Well, I hope it's still possible. I mean, I would argue that, you know, again, one of the one of the great representations of the church and of believers, followers of Jesus should be that there is a spirit of um, of unity and, and, you know, that um, the big C church is on display. Um, so much of the frustration, I think, for many people outside of our of our camps, those who wouldn't say they're a believer or follower of Jesus, is they look at us and go, well, why, you guys don't even like each other. So why should I be interested in what you believe if you can't love one another? So we all know that's true. Now, here's the thing. And from my perspective, this is just my opinion. I do think that there's way more collaboration and spirit of, of unity and partnership that happens than, than, gets, than gets reported. Because again, that's not a, that's not a, that's not something that is, is going to be on the breaking news of the Christian websites, or it's not something that's going to get attention because it's, 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 it's not sexy, you know, um, it doesn't have sizzle, but I think a lot more of that's happening. And I'll give you just some examples that I'm seeing. You know, I, I see a lot of these streams again, the, the, the street, the networks, you know, whether it's a church planting network or whether it's just a sort of friend circle, denominational friend circle, like those, those groups all are willing to like now learn from, from other groups that they would never would have learned from them in the past. And so that's just one example, you know, that the churches I see, especially in like cities where they're saying, Hey, let's like work together on this, on this broader project. That's bigger than us, bigger than one of us as a church, but it, you know, it's really about our community. Let's work together on that. We're seeing pockets of that. I see pockets of that because I'm looking for it. So I would, to your question, I would say it is possible. It's still going on. We don't hear a lot about it unless we're really listening for it because so much of the noise, especially in the worlds where we're trying to, to get eyeballs or, or ears is towards the fringe. And that's like you said, the algorithms and, and all the, you know, the clickbait. I mean, that, that really has, if, if you don't have something that feels like it's, it's pitting one person against the other where it's true scarcity mentality it's hard for you to get anybody to read that. And so what gets all the headlines is the things again, that, that we see that are either like bad news or they're fighting or they're, you know, they're one person gets the other. And, um, I just think that's one side of the story. There's a bigger story that's happening that I'm really hopeful in and I'm really bullish on. Um, you know, so I don't know, what do you see? What do you feel around that, around that, issue. Yeah, no, I think I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense and I think it's uh part of it is an encouragement to make sure you're getting outside of the narrow set of information flow that you're used to, right? Like uh it's mm-hmm. easy when I'm on my phone and all you're looking at is, you know, tweets coming through and it's a lot of calling each other out and a lot of but you're right. I think the key phrase from what you said was when I look for it. Like if you start looking yeah. for those things, I think you start recognizing more of them. And uh and I've found there's so one of the things I've tried to do with this podcast is kind of interview any author that's willing to come on and talk about writing and talk about process. 
Um, and so I've had some guests on here that probably would agree, disagree with each other about a lot of things. Um, but I always find once the conversation gets going around writing and what we're trying to do, and then you start recognizing there is a lot more in common here than maybe the headlines or the tweets would lead you to believe. Um, and it just feels like that space is, is hard to find and the incentives of using conflict to drive views on articles or blogs is, is so enticing. I think that's just hard for people to stay away from. Yeah. What's the goal? You know, I mean, as leaders, to me, any leader in any category, any industry, whether you're a pastor, you're a writer, um, but if you're a believer, so much of your of, of, of the way you posture yourself as a thought leader should be that, again, like if I'm, I'm going to do everything in my power to try to create um, civil conversation and sometimes that means I have to actually like, it's, it's off the record, right? I mean, it's me sitting down with somebody I disagree with and saying, Hey, tell me more about <laughs> why we disagree. So the more human I get, the more personal I get, the more it is, the more opportunities I have to do those kind of things, the more unhuman or inhuman and the more like uh, commercial or like broad or market driven I get, it's so much harder to actually like to do the the unifying and the collaboration. So, yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. And as you're saying, you know, you've got to be looking for the places that it's happening. I think you've got to be intentional about those conversations because it is so easy to just disagree with something online or to write a reaction to something from online where an actual conversation might have revealed a totally different story with that person. And you do. I actually think you do a good job of this with um, you have the H3 Leadership Podcast. And I'm subscribed to it. And as I see those uh, episodes come out, you're interviewing people from a pretty broad spectrum within the church, out of the church, different denominational backgrounds. Uh, that podcast comes out of a book you wrote back in 2016, uh, The H3 Leader, Be Humble, Stay Hungry, and Always Hustle. Uh, maybe you could talk for a minute about your heart for that book and how the podcast has been impacting the conversations, the way you're interacting with people recently. Sure. Well, uh, the... So the podcast didn't even start till last fall, which was goofy because I should have been doing that for way even before the book came out if I would have been way more strategic about it. I mean, I was in the podcast world for early, early, early uh, because of the Catalyst podcast. I mean, we started podcasting in 2005. We were like number one on all of iTunes because nobody else was even <laughs> on there, right? It's not that um, way anymore. <laughs> I know, man. There's, yeah, you, you, good luck getting on the top 100 list. Um, but, you know, I I really like uh, the, the podcast has been a lot of fun because it's it's really my chance uh, not to talk about the book, but more to um, try to be a curator. And we can talk about that more. But I'm with the podcast. I'm really trying to to give people access to links and recommendations and resources and guest interviews, too. But so much of my heart right now is is to find the things and filter and be a curator for the leader's who listen to my podcast to, to really stay up to date on things. And I just found that there's not a lot of those kind of podcasts out there that are really like, Hey, here's the books you should read. Here's the other podcasts you should listen to. Here's, here's a, you know, a, a great top 10 list on the creative voices that I listen to and you should, you should follow. So that's the podcast side. The book really came out of it. In essence, it's my framework um, for, for, I would say like the habits that leaders need to have going forward. And for me, it came out of a season where I was, I was stepping out of leading catalyst. I was a bit dysfunctional. I was starting to get toxic in some of my leadership. 
Um, so that these are the habits that I, I felt like needed to be put back in place for me to, you know, go the next 30 or 40 years of my own leadership journey and, and finish the race well. Um, but the H3 element, the humble, humble, hungry hustle is really been something for me that, you know, over the years, if an intern or, you know, some young leader was on the team and they're like, all right, Brad, listen, I get all this. Thanks for, thanks for, you know, thanks for creating a space for me. Now, how do I win? Like, how do I actually like win the race of being a leader? And I would always say those things. Like those are my three H's and they weren't, you know, I didn't, I wasn't saying them because it was going to be a book. I was just saying them because I thought it made sense. Like if you have humility, if you have hunger and you're willing to hustle, then I think you're actually, your framework of leadership is going to be balanced. And, you know, that's the, the, the important piece for me is I meet a lot of leaders who are one or the other, or they might have two of the three, you know, so the leader who has a ton of humility but has no hustle, they, they, they have a hard time getting actually accomplishing anything. They have the right framework of mind. You know, it's not about me. There's a bigger story, uh, but they really don't accomplish things where the other side is just as true. You know, the, the hustler who has no humility is now just, uh, is just totally out of control, like running over people. It's all about them. Um, it's a scarcity mindset. You know, if I win, you lose. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do everything in my power to, to get mine. And so that's equally as dangerous. Uh, so you really have to take all three of those H's and put them into practice. I think in order to be an effective leader who, who really like lives out all the habits of what I would consider to be again, a, a an H3 leader. You open the book with uh, this question, really an identity question. You know, who are you? You're asking the leader to reflect. Mm -hmm. I think that question actually has already come up in sort of little ways, even in our previous conversation. You know, you're always coming back to this idea of who am I as a leader? What am I trying to do? Um, why is it that you find leaders struggle with identity? It sounds so foundational, like, of course, I know who I am. I know what I'm trying to do. But you're sort of capturing this idea that oftentimes that's not as clear or foundational for us, even in the midst of leadership as we might think it is. Yeah, it's a great question. And everybody thinks they understand the framework of identity. But leaders, many times we struggle with this because incorrectly, so much of our identity starts to go from who am I to what I do or even why I'm here. And, you know, just to break it down for those listening, um, for me, I had to re when I when I stepped out of leading Catalyst just as one example for me of this sort of identity crisis. Um, you know, when I asked the question, who am I? The, you know, the, the sort of the number one sort of filler of that blank was, well, I'm, I'm, I'm the catalyst guy, you know? I mean, I love Jesus. Yes, but I'm the catalyst guy. And that was starting to get dangerously close, mm -hmm. right. To, to being dysfunctional that. So when, and, and then the same thing is true with the, why am I here? Which I would, cons I, I would define as your calling, um, the, the calling why I'm here started to become, well, I'm the catalyst guy, you know, I'm, I'm here because I'm supposed to lead catalyst. Oh, interesting. Like the two are kind of merging into one. Yeah. You got it. And mm -hmm. then the, and then the, and then the assignment, which is the third piece of the framework. If you think of identity, calling and assignment as these, as these three very important pieces of, of really framing up your, the big picture of, of looking at somebody, the assignment, which is really what you do, also was catalyst, right? So now that part was true. That was the only true part of, of me getting a little bit warped. 
and this is true for a lot of us in our vocation. You know, we we get to the place where where everything about us, our identity, our calling, and our assignment is answered by the question of what you do. And and we know that identity should be separate from that. The, the hard one is when, when, again, like what's calling supposed to look like? And I would say, again, this, for me, like my calling is bigger than Catalyst. Uh, it, it should reflect a season of assignment that, that was represented by Catalyst, leading Catalyst, being a part of the Catalyst team. But if that's my calling, man, I'm, I'm dangerously in the red zone when all of a sudden I look around and go, well, wait a second. I feel like this, this season is coming to an end. So does that mean my calling is done? No. It just means that I was incorrectly putting it in that category. So, you know, I think, uh, let me give you an example that, that for people listening might make more sense. You know, the professional athlete. I mean, I, I've, I've had the chance to, to speak at a few gatherings and different things where there are some pro athletes gathered. The number one question for them that they wrestle with, many, most of them, when they get done with their, with their professional career, playing football or basketball or whatever is, well, now what? Because what happened is, is their identity calling and assignment all became, I'm a, I'm a football player. So they get done at 34 and it's like, well, what, am I just going to be on the JV team? Am I just going to like coast into eternity for the next 40 years because I'm done now? No, 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 no. It's just because you were incorrectly giving, giving identity and calling you're, you're giving pro football a, a, a seat at those tables for identity and calling when they shouldn't be. So, you know, pastors, man, we, gosh, we have to be careful about this because I don't know about you. I've heard a lot of pastors who will use the phrasing, well, I'm called to Red Dirt Baptist Church, you know, in Red Dirt, Iowa. Well, that's great. But what happens in two years when you leave and you now go to, you know, Columbus, Ohio? Well, that was you were you were using the phrasing calling, but that's it's actually an assignment. And now you're going to have, you know, you might have seven or eight different assignments of different of pastoring different churches location wise around the country, which then give evidence to this to this calling statement on your life that is bigger than that particular one chapter of the book. So I'll stop there and let you let you crush that or let you like respond to that however you want. <laughs> well, I'm struck by, I mean, the thing that always gets me about these concepts is these are the kind of things you think you can nail down. You know, you've got this thing sorted out in your twenties or whatever. And then by your mid thirties, you're just, you're so in the work that you're doing that these things can start slipping on you or moving on you. And you're not fully self-aware of the way you've put your identity and your calling into maybe just the work that's in front of you. And when that mm-hmm. starts to suffer or something gets criticized, all of a sudden you start taking it as personal criticism and criticism of your calling and um, that those things can move on you without you realizing how much they've moved. Yeah, exactly. And, and here's the thing, like, don't, I would also say this is true. Uh, You know, I believe there is a, I believe there is a spiritual calling, obviously like salvational calling. um, And there's also vocational calling. So when, when the Christian leader says, well, my calling, Brad, at the end of the day is to know God and to make him known. Awesome. So is mine. So like, I feel like that's actually more identity. Um, so, you know, we have to be careful as, as Christian leaders 
to really think more about, okay, when I think of calling the why statement, it needs to, it needs to start to integrate some of the things that God's wired me with, you know, whether it's that you're a communicator, whether it's you're a connector, whether it's, you know, you have the ability to shepherd people, you're, you're a teacher, you know, you, you have, um, you have strong organizational skills, like that we have to think bigger or broader than just, again, the phrases that all of us would say as followers of Jesus. And, and this is, this is again, where it takes a little bit more work to think about that, that specific vocational calling that I think each of us have that then will start to give like evidence and a little bit more freedom to think about our assignments in the right way. Yeah, really helpful. Um, one of the other habits that I thought was interesting from the book is you talk about the habit of bravery, which I think many people would think, mm-hmm. hey, I hope there's maybe a few number, maybe one or two times in my life where I really need bravery. Uh, the yeah. fewer, the better, right? Uh, but you talk about it not as like something that you hope is there when the moment comes, but something that's habitual, something that you're practicing, something that's developing and being cultivated. How is bravery a habit? Well, Again, anything that anything that starts to become a habit or that that I would say is in the right place as a habit is that now it's almost the place where it's unconscious for you. So, you know, um, if you think about exercise, when when exercise or when um, calorie burn, you know, starts to become a habit, you don't have to choose anymore. You're not you're not waking up going, boy, I got to fight with myself today about whether I'm going to work out. No, it's just a habit. It's, it's like brushing your teeth. You know, it's, it's almost so a part of you that you don't even, you never have to make the decision. So the same would be true with bravery or courage or risk-taking or, you know, being willing to step out is if you can get to the place where it's such a, it's, it's so much a part of you that you don't have to make a decision about it. That's when it starts to really show up as the, again, framework that is habitual now. So, excuse me. So part of, you know, what a specific example would be, um, what, you know, what are the things, what, what would be something that, that makes, that, that makes you scared or that, um, that, you know, starts to like keep you up at night that you need to think, okay, I'm going to reverse engineer that then. And I'm just going to start to like put, put so many things in place that will force me to do it on a regular basis that no longer it's a decision that I have to make. And, you know, so many of us have heard um, other people thinking about mindfulness and, and even like Donald Miller at StoryBrand, like, you know, the calories you burn <laughs> in your brain really, mm-hmm. really do have, have a lot to do with the habits you put in place. And so um, whatever that is that, that might make you, it's not just scared like I'm fearful of the dark. It's more like, again, what do you doubt, you know? So let's just take writing as one thing. So if, if, if there, if you're in that place where you're like, man, I would love to become a better writer. I would love to like actually step out into that space. Uh, I'm a little scared. I need some courage. I need some bravery to actually like start to see myself as a writer. Well, then what's the habit or the things that need to be put in place to actually force you to do that where you don't think about it anymore. So it might be, okay, I'm making a decision that every day I will write you know, every day I will capture, um, you know, 500 words that that I just start to like allow myself to to not have to th- make a decision about. And you know, the the way we get this is this is what I've learned that the way we get to these big dreams, 
the way we get to that place where we think, uh, again, like if somebody says, hopefully at some point I want to get a publishing deal with a major publisher. Great. So that keeps you up at night. You're a little scared of that. It's like, well, how do I even get there? Well, we have to start breaking it down into very small um, habitual sort of like components that then allow us to, to have enough of those that we've now like accomplished that we look at the, we look at the other side and we think, well, it's doable now. Right. And so that's, you know, that's, that's what I'm talking about with this habit of bravery is you want to get a publishing deal. That seems scary. Well, what do I, where do I start, Brad? You start with like writing. You want to have the book done, you know, for the most part before you even get a call from the publisher. But that takes like a, a habit of daily having the discipline to actually write 500 words. And that's the way we accomplish these things that seem overwhelming is we start to have to break them down. You know, again, same thing with if I was thinking about exercise or getting in shape or losing weight or stopping an addiction, you know, those are, those are daunting things. The only way to accomplish those is really to start to reverse engineer and then figure out, okay, what are the things that I can actually accomplish that over, over time will, will compound interest into being able to get to that finish line. Yeah. I like this way of thinking about it because it becomes more a way of being than just, just a goal that I set and somehow hopefully I'll achieve it. Um, you're you're yeah. sort of putting into practice, becoming the kind of person that that's going to be possible for recognizing, uh, you know, this could be a long path. I sometimes I'll talk about trying to discern the actual work in front of you. Cause I can feel myself mm. spinning off, trying to think through work that's not the actual work in front of me. Um, you use a great phrase, I think, that's connected to this in the book. Uh, called You call it the habit of stick-with-itness, <laughs> just mm-hmm. sticking with it. Uh, how important is that, just practicing out over the long term, just sticking it out, sort of being the last man standing, if you will, uh, when it comes to these these goals or these habits you're trying to put in place? Oh, it's huge. I mean, it it truly is. Now, it's it's always been important, but I think it's even more important because we live in such a culture that is so anti that or it, that it we almost in, re, in many ways reward short term thinking uh, and we don't value long term perspective and long term stick with So that's I mean, if, if you're if you're a young leader listening to this, one of the ways you can stand out is actually with this idea of stick with like be willing to, to stay be, be willing to do the hard work of like, of, you know, going longer in the journey than you were supposed to. And, um, there's I mean, almost this, something this, that feels toxic in the air. That's like, that's a, that's a strike against you if it takes a long time. Right. There's like this sort of pressure in the air where it's like, if you don't do it fast then you're not good enough at it, or if you're not, if you're not there immediately, then, you know, maybe it's something else for you. It does feel like the culture sort of stacked against this, but so important. It totally is. And, and it so much, again, goes back to, well, how do you get rewarded? I think most employers or most organizations, most people, you know, it, it, and it does have to do with, with long term. It, it, it wouldn't necessarily be that it's taking you so long because you're incompetent. I mean, that, that's different to me. Um, so if, you're, if it's taking so long because you're just not good at what you do, that might be, you know, you might need to be rethinking like what you're actually working on. Um, but in terms of just this idea of, I'm I'm going to be willing to be faithful to the current season, you know, like I'm going to be willing to actually like, uh, even though I know there's this dream for me that is, that feels like that God has stirred up in me, 
I'm, I'm still going to be uh, such a great sort of teammate in the current season of assignment that nobody ever says about me, oh, well, they're just buying time because they're looking at that next season or next opportunity. And as soon as that thing comes along, man, they are out of here. Compared to, I might have something that I that I see in the future, but I I need to I need to think that the way I again steward the current now is the way that I will actually get the best opportunity for the next, and that that's just a true statement. You know, your your now really does like lead to your next. Some people shortcut the process, but most of us, man, when we look back on our stories. We, we can clearly see like, oh, the reason I got this was because I was being faithful in that moment and somebody noticed. And they said, you know, because of that, I'm going to actually give you an opportunity compared to the opposite, which would be, well, because the reason I got this next thing was because I was so distracted by that. That somebody finally just said, listen, they're so distracted, we, we really just need to let them run towards that. I mean, that might happen, but I don't, I don't hear many of those stories. Yeah. Well, was, uh, I'm curious to know how writing came about for you. Was it, was it one of these processes of stick-with-itness? Stick I mean, has, was writing something you saw yourself doing early on? Um, is it something that's come about just because of opportunities? How did you find yourself being a writer? So I started blogging early, early. One, because I just needed an outlet. Um, and I felt like that if I was going to lead a movement, I didn't really care if anybody read it. I just needed to be thinking and, and actually practicing, the, the, practicing the, the, the exercises and the actually, the, actually the, the um, release of what thought leaders do, which is they, they look at something and then they, they add value to people. So I just started blogging and you know, I never was like this super popular blogger, but because of the of the platform of Catalyst, that you know that allowed me to have some, I would say, some thought leadership. Um, I never thought I would write a book. I didn't set out early and think, well, I'm going to blog and then I'm going to I'm going to get more you know followers and then I'll finally get a book deal. I wasn't like looking for that. Um, people started saying, Brad, like for the first book, the Catalyst Eater, was because the brand of Catalyst needed needed some kind of brand book. And it just really made sense for me to write it because I was leading it. Um, and But I had to really be forced and talked into that because part of my thinking was, what do I have to say? You know, at the time when I wrote Catalyst Leader, I was like early 40s, maybe late 30s. And I looked around and thought, well, I don't, I don't even feel like I should be writing a book at this point in my life because – I don't, I'm not sure I'm even, you know, I have enough street cred to, to feel like that makes sense, but people really force me to, my friends would say this, Brad, if you don't write that book and actually share some of the things that you're learning and what you're seeing, you're being a bad steward. And that sort of re, when, when I looked at it that way, I thought, okay, that, that makes sense. Um, but I'm not a, I'm not a writer, Chase. I, I would consider myself an author, obviously, but I'm not a writer. Uh, people, there are certain people who love to write, like they, they are naturally gifted at it. Um, I would say I'm more of a, um, I'm more of a, of a, of a, of a messenger 
But, you know, if without really having a great writer who worked with me on both of my books so far, it would have been like 300 pages of bullet, just like, here's the the thousand things you need to do as a leader. Um, I needed somebody who was a writer to give it prose, to give it like shape, to give it storyline, because I just don't don't actually think about that. So I would definitely not even say I'm a writer. I would say I'm a messenger. I'm an author. Um, I'm a communicator maybe, but I'm very hesitant to even call myself a writer because I, I look at people who write and I think, man, I can't even like, I can't even sit at the same table as you because you're so naturally gifted in actually, and, and you, like you live to write, um, and you write to live like I don't. So that, that for me is a big distinction when it comes to like thinking about the whole world of, of the, you know, the world you're in. Yeah, well, you one thing you've mentioned before that is increasingly important to you is this idea of curation. And I wanted to swing back to this mm-hmm. because you're doing so much of that with the podcast. Um, and I've heard you talk before about you think the future of content, where I think at one point it was sort of just blogs, articles, just put out written content, that today it's becoming more and more the influencer is the curator, the person who can sort of direct people to the best information. Um, Why is it that curation is so important? What is it that you think is becoming more influential about curation? Yeah, it's it's always been important. Um, You know, I, I, I interviewed Kevin Kelly recently, who is the founding editor of Wire magazine and you know, when people talk about the thousand true fans uh, that many people have, have have talked about, and I guess Seth Godin really made famous mm-hmm. in some ways, but Kevin Kelly really was the one that came up with that idea. So anyway, Kevin, I asked him this question about curation, and I said, you know, why do you think it's so important today? And he said, because there's so much noise. He said, never before have we had so much information at our fingertips, but but so little way or so little um, so little smarts to actually be able to process it in such a way that we can do something with it. And I thought, ding, 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 ding. Okay. That's, that's why it's so important today. We, there's so much noise. There's so much content. There's so much information. There's so many talks. There's so many, I mean, think of just, gosh, the, the, the thousands of people that we could listen to their podcast and, you know, watch them on YouTube and, and that's, that's all free. So, the, the barriers to entry have been removed, which again, for me, says now um, that the way for me to actually add the most value in many ways to my friends and to my tribe and to my community and to people that I want to impact is actually to say to them, okay, as much as possible, I'm going to try to do the hard work of filtering. And then I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be a trusted third party friend who will now tell you what you need to listen to or watch or pay attention to. And so for me, that's why it's, and it's always been important. This is, this is not a new thing. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, this, this became overnight, but it is important more than ever because of the fact that there's so much available to us. And I, I just know a lot of leaders who are like, because there's so much available, I don't even, I'm paralyzed. I'm, 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 you know, I can't figure out even where to start, so I don't even start. And so that's why it's important to me. I've, I sense that because I try to keep a pretty good feel on books that are coming out in the Christian marketplace. 
and I have good relationships with publicists at the publishers. Like I've kind of got a leg up on keeping track and there's still books that slip by me that I, you know, they'll be out. And I'm like, how in the world did I not know about that? And, you know, I'm trying, know. like, there's just so much to keep up with, let alone for the average reader or pastor out there. Um, there are a lot of writers listening who have sort of been telling themselves, I just need to be writing, writing articles, blogs, and they're feeling the frustration of they're not getting reads. It's not getting, it's just not getting exposure. Um, do you think there's a way that writers, authors can leverage this power, this influence of curation to help with even their own content? Yes, absolutely. Cause again, like whoever you are, whatever you're writing about, whatever, whatever your thought area is, if you start to become the experts on the expert, you become the expert. I mean, this is why Time Magazine does the Time 100. It's why Fast Company does the most, the 100 most creative people in business. It's why um, Outreach Magazine does the Outreach 100. You know, any of these lists, the, the, these lists are curations that allow me, again, to all of a sudden, like, I automatically become the expert. So, Let's just say you're writing around the topic of, of um, you know, the, the, the church planting movement. Let's just use that. Great. So I, you're trying to get attention. You're trying to, you know, get noticed. You've got content you're writing, et cetera. I would start thinking, well, I want to keep doing that. But also now, how do I, uh, how do I become such the curator and the filterer within my space that now like I can start to get attention with other outlets that would now like, you know, link to my things. And I would say like, do a list, you know, do it, do a list of the top 25 church planting voices that you think are, are really valuable, you know, or the top 10 movements that are out there, the networks, you know? Um, and it, this doesn't have to be time magazine, time 100. I mean, it could be your local, it could be the local paper. It could be a, you know, a, a deep, a deep, uh, website within the interwebs, you know, but if, if you think that way, if you think, oh, I'm equally going to be focused on that. I'm now like able to know the experts as an expert. Um, you, you automatically get moved sort of to the top of the food chain when that happens. And, I mean, I can, again, I can search anything on Google right now. If I do top list in, in a blank subject, I guarantee you SEO also pays attention to that. <laughs> and, and you'll start to go to the top of the list. So that's just one practical thing I would do. Yeah, I think it makes a ton of sense and it resonates with me. I mean, it's so much of what I've tried to do with even this podcast was just how do I find pastors that are interested in reading and writing? Because I know, you know, I've got a book coming out next spring. Uh, I know this will be relevant simply because I know you take reading seriously and you've gotten to know what I, I fill you in on what I'm working on through these conversations. But I've often said uh, if I was running for mayor, I'll give this advice sometimes to I do. I'm bivocational. I do some uh, freelance work and marketing. And I'll often say if I was going to run for mayor of my town, the first thing I would do is launch a podcast and just start having interview conversations with anyone and everyone who is doing something interesting in the community, just because you could own what's happening in your community. And all of a sudden something like, Oh, let's put that guy in charge. seems way more reasonable than, you know, a slick, exactly. bill, a slick billboard with an email campaign or something like that. Yeah. And it, and this is true. You know, again, what's, what are you doing when you, when you host, that's a great example, the, the mayor doing a podcast and he, you know, he or she is inter interviewing the thought leaders from a community. What are you doing in that case? You're curating 
the thought leaders in the community around a conversation that you now are bringing to the table. So automatically, you are the expert, even though you're not even really sharing anything. You're just saying, hey, I got some friends that I'm going to I'm going to hear what they have to say. And, you know, this is this is like the shortcut to me. It's the hack towards influence is now you could also do that same person who's trying to run for mayor could do their own podcast where they they just they sort of opine their thoughts. Yeah. And people like talk radio kind of thing. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. People might listen to that. But I would actually think it's more influential if you if you get the people in your community who have the influence to come on your show. Because, again, all of a sudden, like when you have that conversation, what have you done? You built a bridge of friendship, even if you don't know them. You know, now you've got the you've got some equity in the bank with them. And this is just like relationship building 101. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's Dale Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people. You're just doing it through a different medium. Uh, the other thing I think it does is it lets you actually turn your your ignorance into a into a value because you know early on yes. when I started this podcast like I literally just got agents literary agents to come on the podcast and I just asked them all the questions that I was trying to learn about exactly. landing a literary agent and people would email me asking advice and it was like I'm literally asking the question for myself like you can you can just bring people along and try to learn publicly um, which feels intimidating, but once you get used to it, I think your way of shortcutting into influence, like you just build a group of people like-minded around you and you just sort of have those conversations, those learnings publicly. Isn't it funny that like you said that about agents and they were more than happy to share all their secrets, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had no problem right? getting them on. Yep. Yeah. Because one, most people don't ever ask them to talk about their expertise, but two, because you were curious you automatically like honored them. And, and then, you know, everybody loves the conversation where they did all the talking and everybody like remembers that. And so it's so f- like, you're right, man, figure out what the, figure out what you want to learn the most in, and then just like start doing a podcast mm-hmm. and, and you get to create your own classroom. That's the beauty of it. Well, I think your podcast is a great example of curation. I think the work you're doing, um, it's worth following if for no other reason, even if it's outside of the stuff you're wanting to learn, just to see the way that you're doing it, because I think it's such a great example. Um, if people do want to be able to follow the podcast, but also you, some of the content you're putting out, what's the best way for them to be able to keep up with the work you're doing? Yeah, h3leadership.com is the, that's where you can get all the stuff on the podcast, got all the back the, uh, the, the show notes. And I mean, there's so many links, like you could deep dive into that rabbit hole for days. Um, but that's the website for the podcast. And then, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I mean, bradlominick.com is other stuff. I'm on, that's this, I use that same on same handle on all the social media outlets. I'm not a great follow, unfortunately on social media. I don't post a lot. You're I doing do a lot of listening. Yeah, exactly. Yes, You're working on the curation. I don't, I don't really say much. Uh, so if people are looking for me to you know, say much, then sorry. <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect example to learn from, uh, especially. And, and I'm, you know, I'm interested if any listeners are sort of moving down this road and finding their own ways to bring people along as they're learning or to curate. Uh, let me know about it because I'm curious to hear. I just think there's so many, so many interesting and unique ways of, of exploring this and doing this uh, for people to find. It feels really natural. Sometimes platform can feel people feel uncomfortable promoting themselves, but there's such an easy opportunity to do it this way uh, that I'm excited to see how people take up this call to, to curate and sort of uh, lead learning for people as well. 
Well, I love hearing your story, man, of you just literally starting out and like, I'm just going to get some agents on because I want to learn about <laughs> the, pod, the publishing industry. <laughs> like, that's so smart. You got a, you got an MBA in publishing without having to spend a dollar. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And grew an audience along the way. So some really great exactly. people that have come along. So, well, Brad, man, what an honor and a privilege. You've done so much, contributed so much. I really mean it when I say I'm grateful for you taking the time. And, and uh, we wish you the best as you continue to curate and bring people along with you. I know you'll do a great job with it. Thanks, Chase. Honor to be on, buddy. Thanks, man. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com slash 153. I've got links there for Brad's website as well as the books that we mentioned in today's episode. Also, if you haven't already, maybe consider leaving a review of the podcast. You can do that wherever you listen to those. Um, that feedback is really helpful for me and also helps others discover the show. And if you've not joined the Pastor Writers Insiders Group, I've got some of the most up-to-date information about my book. I've even posted some cover concepts, some different information in there, uh, as well as some ongoing tips, tutorials, discussions about writing. If you're really trying to focus on your writing, improving the craft of writing, that's a really helpful group. It has been for me and others. You can join that by going to pastorwriter.com slash insider, and you'll be able to request to join the Facebook group. We'll get you approved and get you in. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.